0: Welcome to Clinical Pearls. Cervical cancer is the second most common type of cancer in women worldwide. In the United States, its incidence and mortality is well below that of breast, lung, endometrial, colon, and ovarian cancer. The mortality and incidence of cervical cancer have significantly declined after the introduction of routine pap smear screening. In this episode, we're going to go back to the basics and review both the epidemiology, pathophysiology, diagnosis, and of course, treatment of cervical cancer. The mortality and incidence of cervical cancer have significantly declined after the introduction of routine pap smear screening. Cervical cancers are most often squamous cell carcinomas that arise from infection with a high-risk HPV serotype. Consequently, the risk of factors for cervical cancer are the same as those for HPV. These risk factors include early onset of sexual activity, multiple sexual partners, history of STDs, and of course, immunosuppression. Growth of cervical carcinoma is preceded by cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, or CIN. This can be detected, of course, via pap smear. In the U.S., pap smears are recommended for women between the ages of 21 and 64. Another method of prevention is vaccination against HPV. Currently, the HPV vaccine is recommended for individuals age 9 to 45. So, primary, which is vaccination, and secondary, which is screening. These two types of prevention are particularly important given that most patients are asymptomatic during early stages. Advanced cervical cancer typically presents with vaginal bleeding, pelvic pain, and or lower back pain colposcopy, which allows for cervical biopsy to be obtained, is of course a valuable diagnostic procedure. Lesions containing high-grade CIN may be excised using conization techniques. The treatment of invasive cervical cancer includes a combination of surgery, radiation therapy, and or chemotherapy depending on the stage of disease. Now that we've laid down that framework, let's go into more specifics. First, some basic epidemiology. The incidence of gynecological malignancies in the U.S. is as follows, with the most common being endometrial, followed by ovarian, and then the least common being cervical because of the advent and widespread use of the pap smear. Mortality rates due to gynecological malignancies in the U.S. are highest for ovarian followed by cervical, and then the lowest mortality or the best prognosis are endometrial gynecological malignancies. For cervical cancer, the median age at diagnosis is 48, and the highest incidence and mortality rates of cervical cancer occur in African American and Hispanic women. Almost all malignant lesions of the cervix are preceded by HPV infections, specifically those of high-risk HPV, 16 and 18. The reason is because these two types lead to the production of two main oncoproteins, E6 and E7. The E6 oncoprotein leads to inhibition of p53 protein. This causes inhibition of the intrinsic apoptotic pathway. For E7, this leads to inhibition of the retinoblastoma protein, leading to increased activity of E2F family of transcription factors. Regarding risk factors for cervical cancer, we addressed some of these early in the podcast. But just to review, early onset of sexual activity and multiple sexual partners top the list of risk factors, with multiple sexual partners being the strongest risk factor. High parity, immunosuppression, history of sexually transmitted infections, cigarette smoking, and even exposure to secondhand smoke, and oral contraceptives are actually additional risk factors. Lastly, low socioeconomic status and in-utero exposure to diethylstilbestrol, although that's now more historic, wrap up the list of risk factors. Regarding clinical features, patients are usually asymptomatic in early stages. Symptoms commonly first appear in advanced disease. These clinical features of advanced disease can include abnormal vaginal bleeding, including postcoital spotting or bleeding. Abnormal vaginal discharge, which can be blood-stained or purulent and malodorous. Cervical ulcerations, and for late symptoms, when the tumor spreads typically to the vagina, bladder, and the rectum, they can include low back pain specifically because of obstructive nephropathy caused by hydronephrosis. Compression of the veins or lymphatic vessels in the pelvic area can also lead to bilateral swelling of the lower extremities. Lastly, features of disseminated disease may include lymphadenopathy or rarely abdominal, bone, or chest abnormalities. All right, when we come back, let's review the basic staging of cervical cancer. As we wrap up the podcast, we'll hit treatment options. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Before staging is reviewed, let's review the basic pathology here. Cervical carcinoma most commonly arises from metaplastic squamous cell epithelium from the cervical transformation zone. Squamous cell carcinoma occurs in 80% of the cases. Subtypes can include, but just aren't limited to, large cell keratizing, large cell non-keratizing, small cell, and papillary squamous cell carcinoma. The other kind of cervical cancer, which is about 20% of cases, includes adenocarcinoma. These subtypes can include mucinous varieties, endometrioid, clear cell, or serous adenocarcinoma. The most common of the endocervical types are adenocarcinomas that are mucinous subtypes. As for complications of cervical cancer, the direct complications have to do with infiltration of the ureter leading to urinary obstruction, hydronephrosis, and kidney failure. Fistulas also are common and can involve formation from the bladder or the rectum. Compression of veins or lymphatic vessels in the lower pelvis can lead to vasocongestion in the lower extremities. This can also lead to severe DVT risk in the lower extremities. As a direct result of the cervical malignancy, the cancer anorexia cachexia syndrome can also occur. There can also be indirect complications of cervical cancer that are therapy-related. For example, there's complications of radiation therapy. This can include vaginal stenosis, radiogenic cystitis or proctitis, and, of course, fistula formation. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. Regarding staging, cervical cancer spreads by direct extension into the parametrium, vagina, uterus, and adjacent organs like the bladder and the rectum. It can also spread along the lymphatic channels to the regional lymph nodes, namely the obturator, external iliac, and internal iliac, and then to the common iliac and the paraaortic nodes. Distant metastasis to the lungs, liver, and skeleton by the hematogenous route is a very late phenomenon in 2018, FIGO revised the cervical cancer screening scheme. Although it remains primarily clinical, FIGO has allowed certain imaging and pathological findings to now be included as part of the staging scheme. According to the 2018 FIGO staging of cervical cancer, stage 1 is carcinoma strictly confined to the cervix. This is further defined into stage 1a and 1b. Stage 1a is invasive cancer that can be diagnosed only by microscopy with a maximal depth of 5 mm or less. Stage 1a1 is less than 3 mm in depth and stage 1a2 is between 3 and 5 mm in depth. Stage 1b is invasive cancer with measured deepest invasion greater than 5 mm, but the lesion is still confined to the cervix. Stage 1B1 is invasive cancer that is greater than 5 mm in depth, but less than 2 cm in greatest dimension. Stage 1B2 is invasive cancer between 2 and 4 cm in greatest dimension. Stage 1B3 is invasive carcinoma greater than 4 cm in greatest dimension. This takes us now to FIGO stage 2 of cervical cancer. Stage 2 is carcinoma that extends beyond the uterus but has not extended into the lower third of the vagina or to the pelvic wall. Stage 2a is involvement limited to the upper two-thirds of the vagina without parametral involvement. Stage 2B is that kind of cervical mass, but with parametral involvement, but not up to the pelvic wall. Now, we do need to break up stage 2A in a little bit more detail. Remember, that's involvement limited to the upper two-thirds of the vagina. Stage 2A1 is invasive carcinoma less than 4 cm in greatest dimension, while 2A2 is invasive carcinoma greater than or equal to 4 cm. This takes us now to stage 3 cervical cancer, This is carcinoma that involves the lower third of the vagina or that extends to the pelvic wall and causes hydronephrosis or a non-functioning kidney or involves pelvic or para-aortic lymph nodes. Stage 3a specifically is carcinoma involving the lower third of the vagina with no extension to the pelvic wall. Stage 3b is extension to the pelvic wall or hydronephrosis or a non-functioning kidney. Stage 3C is involvement of pelvic or paraaortic lymph nodes irrespective of tumor size and extent. Stage 3C is further divided into stage 3C1 and stage 3C2 based on whether the pelvic lymph nodes are involved alone or if the paraaortic lymph nodes are also involved. Stage 4 is obviously where the carcinoma has extended beyond the true pelvis or has biopsy proven involvement of the mucosa of the bladder or the rectum. Stage 4a specifically is spread to adjacent pelvic organs, and 4b is spread to distant organs. Let's talk about the diagnosis of these stages. For microinvasive disease, remember that's stage 1A1 and 1A2, this diagnosis can be made on microscopic exam of a leap or cone specimen. It can even be done at a hysterectomy specimen. Now, the depth of invasion should not be greater than 3 millimeters or 5 millimeters respectfully. According to the 2018 FIGO revision, remember that horizontal dimension is no longer considered as part of microinvasive nomenclature. Now, note can be given to lymphovascular space involvement, but remember that does not alter the stage, but it may in fact alter the treatment plan. Now, here's a clinical pearl. If the margins of the cone biopsy are positive for invasive cancer, then the patient is allocated to stage 1b1. Clinically visible lesions and those with larger dimensions are allocated to stage 1b, subdivided into 1b1, 1b2, and 1b3 as we've just discussed. For invasive disease, in the case of visible lesions, a punch biopsy may generally suffice, but if it's not satisfactory, then a small loop biopsy or a cone may still be required. Imaging evaluation may now be used in addition to clinical examination where resources permit. The revised staging permits the use of any of the following modalities according to available resources. This includes ultrasound, CT, MRI, positron, emission tomography, and these can provide information on tumor size, nodal status, and local or systemic spread. Now, the accuracy of various methods depends on the skill of the operator. MRI is the best method of radiological assessment of primary tumors that are greater than 10 mm. However, ultrasound has also been shown to get good diagnostic accuracy in expert hands. The modality used in assessing staging should be noted for further evaluation. Imaging has the advantage and the ability to identify additional prognostic factors which can guide the choice of treatment modality. So the goal is to identify the most appropriate method and to avoid dual therapy with surgery and radiation as this has the potential to greatly augment morbidity. Okay, here's another clinical pearl. As of 2018, FIGO no longer mandates any biochemical investigations or investigative procedures for staging. However, in patients with frank invasive carcinoma, a chest x-ray and assessment of hydronephrosis, usually with renal ultrasound or an IVP, should be done. The bladder and rectum can be evaluated by cystoscopy and sigmoidoscopy, but only if the patient is clinically symptomatic, so that's a clinical pearl. Cystoscopy is also recommended in cases of a barrel-shaped endocervical growth and in cases where the growth has extended to the anterior vaginal wall suspected bladder or rectal involvement should be confirmed by biopsy and histological evidence of invasion. Bullus edema alone does not warrant a case to be allocated to stage 4. All right, as we wrap up this part one of the revision to cervical cancer according to the 2018 FIGO Consensus Group, let's briefly talk about grading. We're going to leave specific management of cervical cancer based on stage to part two of this podcast. Regarding grading, grading, by any of several methods, is encouraged, but it is not a basis for modifying the stage groupings in cervical carcinoma. Histopathological grades are as follows. A grade of GX is a grade that cannot be assessed. G1, or a grade 1, is well differentiated, a grade 2 is moderately differentiated, and a grade 3 is poorly or undifferentiated cervical carcinoma. Recent developments in diagnostic imaging and increased use of minimally invasive surgery have changed the paradigm for both diagnosis and management of cervical cancer. This wraps up part one of our two-part series in the new FIGO revised cervical cancer scheme for staging. In part two, we will focus on the surgical and non-surgical management of cervical cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.